Curiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Susan Friedman. Last week, we jumped right into the conversation without really giving Susan any proper form of an introduction. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, well, then you know why we did that. You've already met Susan, and you just want to get straight to the conversation. But there are a lot of people who are new to the podcast who may not yet be familiar with Susan and her work. So I think I I really do need to at least pretend that I'm a proper podcast host and start this second part of our conversation out with something that approaches a proper bio. So let's see what I can do. Dr. Susan Friedman is a a professor emeritus in the Department of Psychology at Utah State University. She's been a pioneer in the application of applied behavioral analysis to captive and companion animals. But she didn't start out working with animals. Her background is in special education, in working with children who are uh, profound behavioral problems. But shifting some of her focus to working with animals was an easy fit because ABA, with its roots in human learning, offers a scientifically sound teaching technology and an ethical standard that can improve the lives of all learners. And that's really the connection that resonates so well with, for me, with my work. Susan runs an online course, Living and Learning with Animals for Professionals. She's written chapters on learning and behavior for five veterinary texts, and she's a frequent contributor to popular magazines. Plus, she has a very extensive website and a great Facebook page. Her articles appear around the world in 15 languages, and Susan has presented seminars for a wide variety of professional organizations. And she's a member of the faculty of the Clicker Expo, which is how I first met her. And I really treasure our friendship that has grown up over time as a result of our connection through the through the expo. Unless I'm presenting opposite Susan, I always make a point of sitting in on her presentations at the expo. But more than that, I really value the time that I get to spend with her between talks. I love watching how generously and kindly she handles every situation. I've developed a mantra as a result. What would Susan do is the question I ask. I'm in a restaurant with slow service and frazzled staff. And so I ask, what would Susan do? I'm in a long line that isn't moving and I'm behind a young family with cranky children. What would Susan do? I sort of know the answer, but I'm not sure I would still be capable of doing it. But still, I, it's, it's helpful to ask the question. I'm in a conversation on the internet that's becoming heated, and there it's absolutely valuable to ask, what would Susan do? Susan is never one to shy away from difficult situations, and that's what's prompted this current conversation. What do you do when the stakes are high and emotions are becoming heated? How do you protect the dialogue and the relationship? We began last week with a discussion of crucial conversations based on a book of that title. And then we expanded it to how do you handle criticism? And that brought us to a great metaphor of you let the fire die down and then you rake through the coals to find the embers that are of great value and that need to be explored, that the criticism has brought to light for you. And that 
through a circuitous path brought us to a great question about functional assessment. So that's where we're going to pick up again in this conversation. Enjoy. We're talking about a constructional approach, which is really about a mindset. It's a philosophy of behavior change that is best described as building repertoires rather than eliminating as perhaps a doctor would when eliminating ringworm on a dog. We're talking about not eliminating problem behaviors, but constructing repertoires to replace them. And that's fundamental in behavior analysis to our three-tier approach where we do our ABC of the problem. Then we ask, how, what does the animal already know that could be used as a replacement for the same reinforces the problem produced? And then what new skills, what new repertoires should be constructed? And that's the basis with which we do that's our worldview with which we do all of our behavior change programs. Yeah, I want to I want to um, emphasize something here. You you just touched on it, but um, you know when I took your LLA course, Susan, um, I learned the importance of functional assessment. I learned this from you. It was very important. Um, notion that I got out of the course and I, I remember and we did a few podcasts on this and I remember you know the expression you said when you said not doing a functional assessment is like just throwing spaghetti on the wall and you know what I remembered in my own words was how counterproductive this could be and so I really really uh, got from you the importance of functional assessment. So I want to hear you on how does functional assessment relates to the hierarchy of procedures. Mm -hmm. Let, let's begin because not everybody is going to be familiar with the terminology. So yeah, so we should probably define both functional assessment and the hierarchy actually. Okay. Um, so functional assessment, uh, is really the ABCs, the assessment of behavior environment relations. That A stands for antecedent, all of the stimuli that are functionally related, that is, that evoke or set the occasion for a behavior occurring. When I'm teaching, uh, zookeepers and dog caregivers, you know, people who are not choosing to be behavior analysts by profession, I will use the word signal because I think it clarifies for them quickly and easily that the antecedents are the setting, the context, and the signals that make a particular behavioral response more likely. The consequences are the outcomes of behaving. We tend when we train to think of them too narrowly as rewards that we control. But I've been a lifelong anti-authoritarian. So finding ways for the science to support letting animals, learners find their control, find their, their control, which is what behavior has evolved to do is to control our outcomes um, has always been important to me. So I teach very quickly that rewards really is too narrow and it's too trainer centric. In fact, it is the animal's behavior that is controlling our hand to the trust. Yes. That's the angle on it that I choose to to deliver when I teach now, other people teaching this information may choose to be more focused on the power of the trainer to control the animal. But this is why I came up with the idea, not, and I say I knowing full well that um, it's the result of my learning history. So there are breadcrumbs from every mentor and critic and influencer I've ever had but we colloquially use the term I as though we're in a vacuum creating these things. I resist that 
that idea. So I focus on the word dialogue. I want people to look for the shared power, the shared control over one another, to think of each other as each other's environment. In fact, I've gone so far down this road teaching that I now teach Uh, We are each other's antecedent and consequences. So the notion that we're alone responsible for our own happiness is scientifically incorrect. And so I push push back Dr. Laura and Dr. Phil and Tony Robbins, because in any interaction, you have a lot of control over me and I over you. And I I try and, and raise awareness of that so that we do get a dialogue in our teaching and learning where I imagine a video where we're taking off the teacher's hat and putting on the learner hat when we listen to the horse. And then it's time for me to tell the horse something. And so I take off my learner's hat and I put on my teacher's hat and I arrange the environment to influence. And then back to the horse, you know, we're teachers and learners at once in any dialogue, any training scenario. So when I talk about consequences, I personally choose to focus on not the rewarding aspects, but the control of the animal to produce those outcomes, to uh, produce feedback from the environment about how to behave again in the future. And so consequences are, I would say, the outcomes of behaving, the environmental change we create with our behavior that then gives us feedback about how to control it better in the future. So it's, again, these are not simple ideas. They take patience and time and repetition and illustration through our videos. So when we put this together, our ABCs, we have antecedent influencers, the signals, including the context cues. We have the behavior that we then use to produce outcomes that were produced last time we heard those or or perceived the signals, right? So the signals are important information. If we were to talk about it from a brain point of view, which we needn't do, but it may be enriching, we would say that our brain's job is to remember and then to bring those recollections forward so that we can make better choices based on the prediction of what happened last time? Are we gonna behave that way again to get those outcomes again? Or are we going to pivot? Once we experience the outcome, it's put into the remembering place for our brain who then helps us decide how we're going. Our behavior work can be done without noticing what the brain is doing, but it may be a way to just hit home this idea that every experience we have helps us behave in ways that maximize outcomes again in the future. So those are our ABCs. Now I will share with you that Joe Lang has discussed discussed with me that he does not like the metaphor ABC or the use of those building blocks. And when I asked him why, because I try and practice curiosity in the face of debate yes, whenever yes. possible. Although he does certainly open, open himself to reinforcing curiosity. So it's easy with Joe. Um, he explained that it makes it sound too simple. That when we tell people the, um, the hub or the nucleus, the smallest unit of behavior analysis is an ABC, that it's sort of like a throwaway. Oh, everybody knows the ABCs. He would rather use response stimulus response or some other um, construction. Yes. I'm forgetting right now some of the ones we went through, um, but I make the choice to continue using the ABCs. First of all, because it's, it is very, very much embedded in our historical jargon. Yes. Um, and because I think it's easy for, for newcomers to remember. But an argument could be made that we should be teaching response, stimulus, response right from the get-go. I worry that RSR and RS Pavlovian 
um, terminology has such negative Pavlovian loading, emotional loading in everybody's history that I will lose people who will then turn away. Oh, she thinks that my elephant is just a salivating dog in a laboratory or a rat in a box. So she must not have anything to add. I find that when I teach the ABCs, people stay open and more interested. So I stick with it. That's an interesting little sidebar about civil disagreement. Yes. Yes. Um, between Joe yeah. and I. And um, but there are there's and so those are the ABCs. That's staying curious and the wise, you know, why do you teach it in this particular way? Why do you use this terminology? Why do you teach it in this order? These I think we can absolutely trust that you are teaching it in that way as, as a product of a great deal of thoughtful evaluation, recognizing the audience that you are reaching out to, that you are going to use this type of terminology. And here are my, here's the thought process that went into it. I was asked recently for the writing book. So why yeah. did you, you know, why did you teach? No, it's the online course. Why why did you teach it in the or or build it in the order that you did? And I love the way the question was presented because it was full of curiosity. It made me very curious right. curious about why are you asking that? You know, there's clearly something to be learned from that question. And I love questions like right. that. You know, that's a well mm. that was a well-designed question that got us both curious. I agree. And I remember that Joe and I were standing in the hubbub of an audience leaving an amphitheater, you know, the steep yep, seats yep. all around us. And he just casually said, oh, I don't like those ABCs. And I was like, you could have heard my brakes screeching and the steam, the smoke coming out of me. Because in my experience in special ed for 40 years, 45 years now, uh, the, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of very well-used special ed books all use the ABC mechanism. Yes. This was the first time I heard somebody disagree with it. So it was delicious. And it wasn't just anybody. It was Joe yes. Lang, who it was easy for me to have the luxury of taking the student role with Joe and say, tell me more. Had it been someone else, I might have been prickly about it. I don't, you know, being really honest with you about the human experience, I might have discounted it out of hand. But it, when, when it was somebody who I hold in such high esteem and whose education I know a lot about and whose work I admire and who's constantly bringing new things to the table. And and who doesn't necessarily have the same target audience that you do. Which he readily, which he readily gave to me. In talking about the hierarchy, he said the same thing too. He said, I'm really of two minds. I'm cautious about having people mindlessly run through a retinue of steps on the one hand, but I'm very understanding that in bringing this science to sort of just to the streets, you know, which is what I've been doing for the last 25 years with enormous pleasure, that we, we need to start where they are and where they listen best, so. So you were going to define, yeah, you were going to define the functional assessment and okay. then the hierarchy and how they relate. But before, and this is, I don't want to take us, I don't want to derail that because I want us to go there. But I was just going to comment that, it, you know, we started with crucial conversations. And this, it just seems to me, is all part of really being very skillful in those crucial conversations and developing the kind of of history and trust with people that when Joe Lang says something like, oh, those ABCs, I don't like them, that instead of it getting to, to fisticuffs, you're slamming on the brakes and saying, I want that conversation. I mean, that's what we should be aiming for is, is that it's not put out there in a way that is intended to be hurtful or harmful, but it's intended to get that, that stimulating conversation going. That's the best kind of conversation. Right. You know what it used to be called? 
You know what it used to be called in the good old days? Not behavior vocabulary. It used to be called good manners yeah. and, and respect. That's where I was going. We hate that word. It's not that we hate the word. It's that we hate the use of it without describing yeah. behaviorally. But it used to be called just respect. Yeah. So we yeah. have, that's exactly where I went. But I went to a sister term to respect is relationship. Yes. And, you know, mm -hmm. I teach this idea as well, that those terms can be useful once we've operationalized what they mean. They are not inside us waiting to come out. They are behavior patterns and conditions that we label in that way. I've defined relationship. And again, every time I say I, I have to admit it kind of, I don't, I, I'm not so comfortable because I am so much the product of my learning history. And if I really thought hard about it, I could tell you where I got this value to remember who, where you've come from and that you're always the product of all the mentors who have put something you know, into your thinking. But in thinking about how to operationalize words like respect and relationship, I've come to describe or operationalize, describe observably, operationalize the word relationship as a history of shared reinforcers. Can we go there a minute? Because I went exactly where you did. You went to manners or respect, relationship. It's all coming from the same um, repertoire of behavior and the same context in which we wish to see it. When you have a history of shared reinforcers, as I do with Joe, so there is shared reinforcers back and forth between us so that when he criticizes my use of ABCs, that shared history of reinforcement is the ground on which we stand together that keeps me calm and curious. Had it been, I'm just going to go with Caesar Milan because I can't think of too many people that I would discount out of hand. So he's the icon yes. for me. If if Caesar Milan said to me, you know, I don't like the ABCs, I would say, okay, Caesar, I, I gotta go get a coffee, <laughs> you know? So what I wanna punctuate this idea with though, maybe different than where you're thinking I'm going. When somebody doesn't come to me with curiosity and they don't come to me with manners or respect, I, as a behavior analyst, committed to this philosophy of how behavior works, this worldview of behavior works, I must ask myself, is this symptomatic of not having enough shared reinforcers? Mm -hmm. I'm responsible for that analysis. And I would hope that they would be inspired, whoever they may be, Caesar Milan, back at me, or as I mentioned before, the path behind me, littered with failed relationships. This is how we bring crucial conversations and behavior analysis together to form a bigger whole. That is to say, my worldview is even the angry people are coming from a history of learning. Their anger represents a lack of shared reinforcement. Now I can say, do I want to establish shared reinforcers? I get to say no. I get to say there's only so many minutes in a day. I only have so many people that I can maintain shared reinforcers with. I get to choose who they are. Or I get to say, oh, I must have hurt that person in ways that emptied the trust account of shared reinforcers. So now they're behaving in these punishing, disrespectful, ill-mannered ways. I wanna do something about that. Or I get to say, I don't, and they get to as well. So all of that's on the table. And that's one of the reasons why I love Crucial Conversations because at the end of the book, it says, listen, this book is not to convey that you should never fire anyone. Sometimes the right thing to do is to kick them off the team, <laughs> right? That's why I say sometimes the thing to do is to throw down 
with the Me Too movement and advocate for it, to throw down with the neuroatypical movement and say, I'm an advocate of this movement and I'm an angry advocate of this movement. There's a place for that. But so many times we're in that repertoire of anger and throwing down and I'm scratching my head saying, why isn't this like Joe Lang and I? Well, I know the answer. We don't have a history of shared reinforcers or what shared history we had was not strong enough to keep the relationship afloat in the face of the punishers. That would be a behavior analyst's understanding. So I don't abandon my behavior analysis knowledge or skill just because we're talking about interpersonal stuff. That's the time for us to pull it out and use it best of all is to say, how does this happen? We know why this happens because we understand how behavior works. Yeah. yeah. And then we make choices. Yeah. And emotions get in the way a little bit. Well, emotions. <laughs> to the analy- you know, being, being very objective and analytical when you're very angry. But if you have a behavior analytic understanding, I would say in Israel, gold diamond, because behavior anal- analysis is not one monolith. There is so much disagreement and debate among behavior analysts, and yet we all hold the same worldview. The worldview is behavior is a function of its consequences and everything is built up from that one simple nucleus, truth, EMC squared, you know, behavior equals F slash C. And then everything is iterated from there. We all hold the same worldview. However, Billy Baum thinks that Skinner underestimated the power of antecedents as he described phylogenically important events as antecedents to consider, that there's something important about being a rat. Skinner could respond by saying, well, there may be, but I'm not interested in ratness. I'm interested in universal principles, Billy Baum, so go do your thing. And the disagreement will stand through the ages. Stadden disagreed with Skinner. You know, there's so, but people don't know about that because they're zoologists, they're ethologists, they're veterinarians, they're not behavior analysts. Do we hold them accountable to know that? Not only if it's of interest. So the, um, the emotions part that Joe Lang has brought to the fore recently that I've really studied and eaten up with him as well as with Carl Cini and other people who know so much more than I helps in the comment that you made. If you use what behavior behavior analysis has to offer, um, it is that emotions are tracking contingencies. They are not a separate system from behavior. They are part of a behavioral system. That part that makes your heart race and your mouth get dry and your pupils to constrict and your stomach to churn and your skin and muscles to tense because you're in an environment that is punishing to you. So when we talk about, oh, but emotions get in the way, in fact, they are a diagnostic for us. When you feel those big negative emotions that we used to describe as getting in the way of thinking behavior and good ambassadorial or manners, right? Acting. They're not in the way of, they're not separate from, they are, they are diagnostic of being in an aversive contingency. Now we can go back to the environment to say, where's the aversiveness coming? Because I have the power to change it. I can remove it forcefully, violently, angrily. I can dismantle it delicately and peacefully. I can just walk away. I can engage. You know, my whole repertoire is available to me. So even when we talk about emotions, we can talk about them with a behavior analytic orientation, which is how is the environment moving the entire system, 
one of the beautiful things about behavior analysis that isn't talked about often in training is this is the science of the whole organism, not a piece of the organism. Ooh. It's of the whole organism. It's not just examining the brain or just examining the organism's genes, its DNA. Behavior analysis is quite unique in that it studies the whole organism. And when we remember that, we have to ask, well, how is emotions part of behavior environment relations? They're tracking the contingencies we're experiencing. That empowers me to not be angry it's to find where the aversive stimulus is coming and decide what am I going to do with my repertoire to have it not ruin my day, no less my week, my month, my life. And that brings us to Gold Diamond's, again, that coinage. It's not that he invented something in the way that we would say Skinner did not invent anything. It's that he noticed something and by giving it a name and then iterating through his writing, he provided a clinical behavior analysis for humans that had not been there before, that is now coming full circle back to animals when we say, what repertoires can we construct? But it was utterly human oriented. How can I help a person suffering chronic depression? Well, by seeing, first of all, that the emotion we call depression is tracking a lack of control over reinforcers and by building repertoires to control them. Mm -hmm. For this to come back around through Joe, for us to ask, what, what behavior repertoire should I construct in this rhino in a zoo? It's unbelievably yes. enriching. It allows us to do just what we always wanted to do, change the world, yeah. change the world with our science. Yeah. Changing the world is a good thing to be. <laughs> to have on yeah, our radar. Have on the radar. Oh my God. Yeah. Especially in this last COVID year oh, or two yes. and of George Floyd and me too, and a respect and rethinking of neuroatypical and, and climate change. Climate change. I mean, there'll be nothing to debate right. unless we put That's that on right. the radar. Everything right? else will be trivial or pale. And, will be chopped yeah. liver. That's Irre right, irrelevant. compared to yeah. that concern. Yeah. But so, should That's we go right. back to the hierarchy? Because I derailed us a little bit with oh, this sure. crucial conversations. But I, I had to make, because it was just, it was too delicious a link back to where we started not I to make know. it. So, so now I get to loop. And what your audience should know is that we've already talked for an hour before we started the podcast. Actually, it was two hours. <laughs> we need to sleep over. You and your <laughs> podcast audience are invited to Utah for a sleepover. Oh, I hope you have a very big house. So, so yeah. the hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's where we were headed. So we went into the functional assessment and then that it's very relevant as a, a case in point it is very relevant um in so many ways again that you might not expect me to go last i taught the july lla we're finished what a magnificent group in january for the first time january 2021 for the first time my students started to ask me who decides when I would talk about things like teaching the dog to sit at the door rather than rush out, or teaching the child to wait at your hip while you finished your conversation before turning to them with their question. For the very first time after really 45 years of teaching this information in various forms as I've grown and understood it better each year, an, an, a group of students asked me this question, but who decides? Who decides whether the kid should wait or the dog should sit? And I was completely taken aback because as I always say, there are very few questions I haven't been asked before. So people will often say to me, you are so fluent at responding to audience questions. How do you do it? And I say, because I've answered that question 42 yes, times. Yes. So if I'm finally good at it, Let's celebrate because I've had a lot of practice tweaking and tweaking and tweaking based on the 
consequences they provided when I answered. So I stumbled my way through it in January. Bless that class for asking. I didn't understand where it was coming from. By July, I had given it enough thought that it started to raise, it, it started to become illuminating slowly, like a rheostat in my mind. They were asking because of the YouTube movement, uh, uh, the, sorry, the Me Too movement of the, <laughs> yeah, and it turned out to be a me, me, and you, and you, and you, too movement. Um, the neuroatypical movement. Who decides that a child with autism who is spending 20 minutes during class time flapping their hand in the light should not do that? Who decides that that ch child should have to spend 15 years of incredible effort and restraint to keep that hand down in their lap? Who decides? So what I realized was we are in a new place now, and it is extremely exciting. We could not have asked that question 25 years ago. We were not ready to ask. We didn't know enough to ask that question. What people are asking now is, are all the things we used to do needing a, a fresh evaluation and revision for 2021? I give that as my preface because I had to ask myself about the hierarchy. The hierarchy is now 25 years old wow. in my teaching and a little less in my first article, effectiveness is not enough. You know, when we talk about another example that might be closer to your audience, I remember when Monty Roberts came out with his pin flag style of teaching an animal to station calmly in front of him. That incredibly interesting use of negative reinforcement where the way you can escape this flag in your face and in the corner of your eye is by standing still. It was a revelation for many of us who had come up in a culture of hitting horses with two by fours. And I had to say to myself, there is a progression of thought and behavior. Now, some of us, I don't even know what term to use. You're like the, the, the fairies, the angels. I, I know who they are. I've met many of you who knew all along you didn't need to use a pin flag to teach a horse to stand still. But I didn't know that. And the culture at large of people who loved horse riding didn't know that. Well, well, you knew it before someone told you about horses. You knew it as a child, I think. But maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I, I don't know if I hear you. That's big and I need to think about it. Because I don't know if left to, um, I don't know what, are we born? Let's say that. Can we save that? Okay, we'll do, yeah. That we can, needs yeah. exploring. Let's save that. But you know, children acquire learning history in utero, right? They're learning in utero. So I'm not sure what they come out knowing in terms of experience, right? We'll do but a podcast do that. on that. And let me think that through. <laughs> but I know what the point you're saying is that you have to learn to hit a horse yeah. with a two by four and that be okay. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And if we don't give them, if we don't give people that learning, it never occurs to them. But that's exactly the point that I'm making is that we, we are seeing a progression of humanity over the generations where kids mm -hmm. used to be in sweatshops, right? And now we wouldn't dream of having a child working a 16 hour day in a hot factory. So are we saying they should have known? Or are we saying that we needed experience contacting the environment through these cultural mistakes and allow our science to have its influence to bring us to the point that, that now we can say hitting a horse with a two by four is never necessary? 
So in my current thinking from the chair today, when my students started asking me who decides, I, I realized that the answer I could give them is we decide now, but we should never forget that it is likely we needed some of those experiences to get us where we are now. So I would not teach a child with autism the same way discrete trial training with eight hours of repetition that we did then. But I want to remember that then it was a breakthrough strategy that was less intrusive than having them tied to a pillar in the attic. And when I'm telling you that we found kids in attics and garages, I am not being hyperbolic. That in my early years coming up in special ed, when the law was first passed, that described least intrusive principle, goes by many names, least restrictive alternative, least, restri least um, most positive, least intrusive alternative. All of these go, are synonyms for the same concept that the discrete trial training that I might not do today was a huge increase in humaneness compared to the way they were treated in the last generation. That's my contribution mm -hmm. to the discussion. Is it enough? Is it sufficient? No. But is it a necessary part to have in the discussion? I think it is. So when I look back at Monty Roberts with a pin flag, I'm remembering that that approach was in comparison to the cowboy's structure of previous generations. The, the, what he was trying to move away from was tying a horse to a snubbing post and sacking it out. Sacking them out. Sacking yeah. them out. Which is still done, by the way. Uh, misdeeds will always been done. I think, right. We increase the repertoire of the alternatives, but you don't eliminate from the planet these, some of these techniques. No, you don't. Or, or, or we just need more generations. Yeah. I don't yeah. know, Alex. That remains to be seen because there are certain things that, well, maybe not from the planet. Anyway, so I say that all because this is kind of a new way for me to think about you know, when, a behavior, when behavior analysis is angrily um, attacked from people who were autistic children in my generation of teachers, and now they're adults, I have to let that blaze burn and then rake over those coals and say, what's important about what they're saying to me that will influence how I behave in the future? And there's a lot that's important about me too, neuroatypical, you know, and all the different things we talked about. But they have a context in which they grew. So Monty, uh, Monty, <laughs> Monty Roberts, I'm not even gonna drill down no. on that joke. Monty Roberts was coming from a context of tying them up, sacking them out, hobbling, now we look at the pin flag strategy, the negative reinforcement strategy, and say, you know, we can do everything we need to do without upsetting the animal with a negative reinforcement, right. aversive antecedent escape strategy. Right. Without putting them into learned helplessness. That's right. Well, that's true. I think that behavior analysis is also looking at where we came from, where we were, that was yep. the improvement and what our next improvements yes. are. And that's the good thing. And when I wrote the hierarchy, it was Ken Ramirez said on a video um, Zoom talk, he said when he first read it, it was like the skies open and the angels came down to earth, which was nice and fun yeah. to hear. That was the immediate it was like very thirsty people trying to have the standardization to give them the leverage to say blanket positive punishment should be so rare as to practically be not necessary. The tiniest part with the biggest speed bump and the strongest stop sign. 
it was a huge step away from what people were arguing about positive reinforcement being too slow. We've shown that's not the case. Positive reinforcement is going to produce addicts with no intrinsic reinforcement strength. That is shown not to be true. So in some ways, I think about the context in which I delivered this homely little hierarchy, which I've always talked about it as. Um, And so it had its, um, it was a big leap away from where we came from. But now recent criticism has me looking at it again and talking with people, my mentors and people who are very dedicated to its usefulness and rake over those, those coals to see if there's something important. And um, I did list the main disagreements, the criticisms, or as you wanted to say, the questions, but they've come as criticisms and I'm, I'm bold that way. I don't mind. Um, you know, criticism is necessary for the self-correcting science, the self-correcting individual. I, 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 I welcome the thought that it takes to say, is this really where we want to be now? Even if we acknowledge it's where we want it to be then. Um, I'm open to all of that discussion and always have been and always have presented it that way is, you know, this is, this is an idea. I'm putting it into the, into the conversation and, and then let's see where it holds up and it doesn't. It was filling such a hole, the data tell us, it was filling such a hole that there wasn't even a lot of criticism or discussion originally. It was just like, finally, somebody had given us something we can, we can hold on to, to move in our positive reinforcement direction. But now, 20 some years later, we can take a look at it and say, are we going to, do we need to discuss ways that we're now ready to move forward and make changes. I would so like to just keep going, but we've come to a good stopping place. So that's what we're going to do. We're about to embark on a really fascinating discussion of the hierarchy of behavior change procedures, and most especially of negative reinforcement. But that's for next time. As always, Susan has given us a lot to think about. It's amazing how many threads she has already tied together. I have so many more things to draw on the next time I find myself wondering, what would Susan do? I'll think of the definition of relationships, a history of shared reinforcers, and I'll remember that emotions are diagnostic for us. Emotions track contingencies. If I'm feeling angry or grumpy, I can remember to ask, Where is the aversive stimulus coming from that is making me feel this way? And I can decide what to do about it so it doesn't ruin my day. I can also remember to look at the choices that I make and the choices that others make in relation to the context in which a behavior was learned. If I'm a horse owner who's only seen other people getting tough with their horses, getting out the riding crops and putting the spurs on, then that's what I know. That's the context in which I'm going to be making my training choices. And I need to keep that in mind when I look at the decisions that people make and the the choices they make and the, the mindset, the belief system they have around their animals and around the options that they think are available to them. All of this matters, and I think it's really important to remember, as Susan has pointed out, it's important to remember the context in which something evolved, and something that can feel really groundbreaking when it was first presented. Now that we've chewed on that idea and explored it and used it, to evolve and grow and mature our ideas, that procedure which was so revolutionary 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago 
can now seem very outdated and in need of a good dusting off or maybe even being folded up and packed away in the proverbial tack trunk that's never opened when you're trying to come up with solutions for your horses. It's that wonderful phrase that I always attribute to the poet Maya Angelou. When I was young, I did the best I could, and when I knew better, I did better. And I always think of the image of stepping stones. You know, stepping stones are the the ideas, the, the concepts, the solutions that you've explored in the past. And I, I like to remind people that you never need to get mad at your stepping stones. These are the things that you learned. They're the choices that you made in the past. And they've brought you to where you are now. So I look back on my stepping stones and I see how they've brought me to what I'm thinking about today. And I appreciate each and every one of them, even though there are training methods that I've used in the past that I absolutely would not use today. And that's really the point. We keep revisiting these ideas, thinking about them, and listening to the comments, the questions, the criticisms people have. And as Susan's wonderful image of, you know, you let the heat of the moment, you let the fire die down, and then you you rake through the coals to find the embers that are of value, that are worth considering. And so really that's what we've been doing. We've been exploring the embers. And next week, we're going to continue this discussion of where we've been in the training world and where we are now. What are the questions that we're ready to ask that weren't even on our radar a few years ago? That's where we're going to pick up next time. The discussion around negative reinforcement was really fascinating. I just loved it but you're going to have to wait. So until next time, have fun with your horses.